Podcastle, episode 353, from March 3rd, 2015. Irregular Verbs by Matthew Johnson. Rated PG, though it deals with mature subjects of loss and grief. Hello, welcome to Podcastle. I'm Peter Wood, stepping out from behind the audio production desk to host this week's episode. A story about language and love. Not language merely as a means of communication, but language as the way we structure our understanding of the world around us, of our loved ones, of ourselves. And not love as an idea or a concept or even a feeling, but love and loss as a fundamentally embodied experience. Language, like love, cannot exist in a vacuum. Both require an other, a social dimension that is fundamental to being human. We are perhaps alone in our own experiences, but never alone in our understanding of those experiences. Our parents, our schoolmates, our loves, our friends, our books, our poetry, our movies, our TV, our music all speak to us so that we can enunciate not just our own thoughts and feelings, but our very sense of self. Podcastle is very proud to present Irregular Verbs by Matthew Johnson. Matthew lives in Ottawa with his wife Megan and their two sons. Irregular Verbs is the title story in his collection, Irregular Verbs and Other Stories, which was published in 2014 by Cheesine Press. I highly recommend checking this collection out. He has some fabulous stories in there. He has also been published in Asimov Science Fiction, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Strange Horizons, as well as having stories reprinted in the year's best science fiction and fantasy, Fantasy, the best of the year, and Best New Fantasy, too. And he's been translated into Russian, Danish, and Czech. His work has been nominated for the Sidewise Award and the Pushcart Prize, and has twice been highly commended by the Medea Awards. You can find out more at his website, zetrikion.blogspot.ca. Our narrator this week is Christopher Renega. Christopher works as a writer and futurist for a research and development team in the heart of Silicon Valley. He is a graduate of Clarion West and winner of both a First Place Writers of the Future Award and a Bazinella Literary Award. He has stories in The Book of Cthulhu II, Giganotosaurus, The Drabblecast, Cemetery Dance, and The American River Literary Review. So, put quill to paper, needle to skin, and enjoy the story. Irregular Verbs by Matthew Johnson Read by Christopher Reynaga Apihular To let a fire burn out Gelas To treat something with care Pikanao To cut oneself with a fishhook It is a well-known fact that there are no people more gifted at language than those of the Saludian Isles. Saludians live in small villages on a thousand densely populated islands. Isolated, but never alone, their languages change constantly, and new ones are born all the time. A Saludian's family has a language unintelligible to their neighbors. His old friends are jargon impenetrable to anyone outside their circle. Two Saludians sharing shelter from the rain will, by the time it lets up, have developed a new dialect with its own vocabulary and grammar, with tenses such as when the ground is dry enough to walk on and before I was entirely wet. 
It was in just such circumstances that Sundari Ang had met his wife, Kasepi, and in such circumstances that he lost her. An afternoon spent in a palm tree shadow is enough time for two people to fall in love, a few moments enough to die when at sea. Eighteen monsoons had passed in between, enough time for the two of them to develop a language of such depth and complexity that no third person could ever learn it, so utterly their own that it was itself an island without ties to any of its neighbors. For the ten days of his mourning, Sindiri had stayed on the private floor of his house, listening to the fading echoes of his wife's voice. On the eleventh day, he descended to the public floor. That was the longest time thought to be safe, any more away from the great conversation, the hour in the evening which all Saludians join in maintaining their one common language, ran the risk of leaving a person stranded, isolated by changes in dialect. His friend Timon was waiting for him, feeding new coals for the brazier to replace those that had burned cold. It was just like Timon, Sindiri thought, to think of a little thing like that, and for a moment the sight of this old friend cheered him a little. Apa Kabar, Timon said. Sindiri just stared at first, not recognizing the words in Grand Saludian. How should I be? he asked after a moment. I'm here, and she's not. As soon as he spoke, he regretted it, gave thanks that it was in Timon's nature to chew his words thoroughly before spitting them out. That's true, Timon said mildly. Wincing, Sindiri sat on the reed mat next to his friend. I'm sorry, he said. Thank you for coming here and, and for the coals. I've gotten very tired of cold rice. Timon smiled, clearly relieved at Sindiri's change of mood. It's hard, I know, coming back down, rejoining the rest of the world. Sindiri shook his head. Ten days to mourn someone who... Someone... It just isn't enough. A lifetime isn't enough, Timon said, smiling sadly. But it's all we have. That night, Sindiri realized he had forgotten a word. He'd been dozing, half asleep, the smell of the squid curing in the thatch above reminding him of his and Giuseppe's last fishing trip together, when suddenly he could not remember the word for the moment at the end of the long season before the goatfish run, when you think you will die if you have to have another bite of dried fish. He couldn't remember which of them had coined it, one of a hundred thousand words they shared, but he knew that it was gone. That's ridiculous, he thought. It's just nibbling the line. He ran through syllables in his mind, trying to catch a memory that slipped and dodged around him, but it was no use. The hook was empty. He shook briefly, reaching out instinctively across the hammock for the warmth that had once reassured him. Sindiri cast his mind back, remembering conversations they'd had, testing the memory like a tongue probing a loose tooth. Mana Adala Sharing. What was that word? Suddenly gaps were appearing in his memories, where there was a grand Saludian equivalent. The word from that language slipped in. Things for which that language had no words, were simply gone. Most frustrating, some were words he knew he'd remembered that morning. So far, 
one in a hundred perhaps, was gone, but more were joining them. He'd never really thought of a language disappearing before. When his mother had died, he and his father preserved their family language, and when his father had died, other people, relatives and neighbors, had known enough of it to keep it alive in his mind. Giuseppe's family, though, had been from another village, not witness to their life together, and they had no children to carry their language on. When it faded from his mind, it would be as if it had never been, as if she had never been. Sindiri sat up, watched the holes in the thatch for the first hint of dawn, cursing the darkness. He would need light for what he had to do, and every moment that passed was his enemy. Saludians, on the whole, are not much for writing things down. Their languages are too fluid and mercurial to be caught on paper. Only Grand Saludian has a written form, introduced by missionaries of the Southerner to spread his words to the isle and used by village headmen and island chiefs to record debts and proclamations. Sindiri, whose father had been a headman, knew how to read and write, and like most islanders, knew how to dry and prepare squid ink to sell to foreigners. Though his and Giuseppe's language was as alike to Grand Saludian as a stingray is to a monkey, he bent its letters to its purposes, torturing and teasing the characters until they could record the sounds that would never be spoken again. He began opening the bundles of cold rice, which friends and relatives had left as mourning gifts to write on their banana leaf wrapping. Frantically he wrote word after word, pausing only to mix more ink when the bowl ran dry. After some hours the house shook, but he did not look up from his work, only when he heard the ladder up to the private floor creaking did he pause, put down the straightened fishhook he'd been using as a quill. Sindiri? Timon's voice called up from halfway up. Friends, though they were, the private floor was inviolate without an invitation. What is it? Sindiri asked. The conversation, Timon said. Sindiri exhaled sharply, set his work aside carefully. Had it been that long already? The great conversation was held an hour before dusk. He had not even noticed the shadows creeping across the floor. Just a moment, he said, his joints complaining as he stood. He heard Timon climbing back down the ladder, waited until he felt the house sway as his old friend's feet hit the floor below before heading down himself. Timon waited until he had reached the floor, then the two wordlessly passed along the way to the broad walkway that joined his house to the rest of the village. Below, the receding tide had exposed the mud into which the village's posts were sunk, and the afternoon sun had left it stinking. Everywhere nets were hanging to dry, their sharp, salty smell burning Sindiri's nose. At the public walkway, all the villagers were stretched out in the line that made up the great conversation. All voices were speaking in Grand Saludian, in most cases, the only time they would speak it that day. Timon's uncle Paman, the headman, moved up and down the line, making small talk and ensuring everyone used the correct form, without words or constructions from other dialects creeping in. All Saludians know that their gift for languages could easily be a curse without a common tongue. The separate islands of their speech would drift inexorably apart. Sindiri joined in the conversation gamely, the words tasting flat and oily in his mouth. What, after all, could Grand Saludians express? Village business, fishing advice, weather talk.
Timon had returned to his assigned place in line, so Sindiri made small talk with his neighbors, two nattering old women, Kiri on one side and Kanan on the other, meaningless prattle of rotting walkway boards and late fish runs. Finally, the sunlight reddened and the walkway fell into shadow, and he could go home. The conversation was over. Freed, he ran back to his house, felt the mangrove poles that supported it sway as he shot up the ladder. He sat down, spat in the ink bowl to moisten it, picked up his quill, and what had he been about to write? He scanned the leaf he had left on the floor, hoping to find some clue in what he'd written before. Saw no connections in the list of words he'd been writing. Searching his mind for the words he'd inventoried that morning, he found even more were gone. It was more than simply forgetting them, he realized. The language was eroding, an atoll being washed away by the ocean of Grand Salodian. He would have to forego the conversation then, until the language was preserved. He laughed. What would be lost? No poetry could ever be written in Grand Salodian. It was a deliberately simple language, shorn of all subtlety, a language of nothing but nouns and verbs, no genders, no tenses, but now and not now, no pronouns, but I and not I. It would do him no harm to not use it for a few days. Kaluarka. To move to a new village. Ngtuk. To call out in one sleep. Lunak. To search for something without finding it. As the night went on, though, he started to wonder just how long it would have to be. Even with all the words he had lost, he wondered if he could ever write down what was left. He had enough fish oil to burn his lamp for a night, maybe two. More urgently, he was nearly out of banana leaves to write on. Squinting, he made the letters as small as the tip of the hook would allow and began jotting apostrophes to separate words instead of spaces. Earlier, when he had devised his system of writing, he had not thought about space. Now he cursed his decision to use combinations of letters to represent sounds that did not exist in Grand Saludian, rather than inventing new characters. He was netted now, though. A dictionary had to be consistent, or it was useless. This much he had learned from Grand Saludian. He kept writing, pushing himself to make the letters smaller and smaller. Hunched over the banana leaf on the floor, his arm held tightly to keep his strokes small. Sindiri's forearm jerked, scratching a line across the floorboard. He swore, drew the quill back to throw it across the room in anger, when he saw that the ink had dried on the wood floor without smudging. Of course, he thought. What else would be a suitable record of the language that he and Cassepi had shared, other than the thing that was theirs alone? Excited, he raised his arms to stretch his back, dipped the quill in the ink bowl, and began running along the edge of the wall. He worked his way inward as dawn came, and the daylight hours passed. He worked in silence as Timon once again came up the ladder, called his name, called again, and finally left. His quill scratched against the floorboards as he followed an inward spiral toward the center of the room, always trying to increase his pace, to write words down faster than they could be washed away by his mind's tide. Thunder made him look up. It was dark again. Lightning flashed through the holes in the thatch, illuminating the room for a moment. Focused on his words, he had not noticed the smell of rain in the air, the sound of it as it fell on the roof. Now, in the lightning's flare, he could see puddles sitting on the floor, smudging and washing away most of what he'd written. He froze for a moment, rigid with anger. Then, too tired even to rage, Sindiri fell to the floor and let himself sleep.
Asleep, he saw himself sitting with Giuseppe at their boat, leaning against the palm-stern gunwalls on a calm sea. She was speaking, but the words made no sense, and he knew that he had at last forgotten their language entirely. He opened his mouth to speak, then felt something resting in his hand. Looking down, he saw that it was the book he had been writing, containing every word the two of them had ever spoken. Flipping through the book, he tried to speak, to say one of the things he wished he had said, but all he could do was string words together. Giuseppe now, in a boat of her own, began to drift away. Sundiri called to her, but the words he read from the dictionary had no emotion, and no reaction registered on her face. Even in its perfect state, he realized, the book was just a record, a dead thing without the soul of the language. He woke from fevered dreams to see Timon sitting on the mat nearby, a bowl of water at his side. His friend rose to his knees and held out the bowl. Have some of this, Timon said. I think you've had a fever. Uh, thank you, Sindiri croaked, then took a drink. He felt a sharp pain as he sat up. The hook he'd been using as a quill had stuck in his side, leaving a black ink spot when he plucked it out. Why are you... You've missed two conversations, Timon said, and you were moaning last night, loud enough your neighbors could hear. The talk is. Sindiri nodded. He knew what the talk would be. Sometimes when a person dies, they take the souls of those they love with them to the sea floor. What's left is just a hantu, a dead, empty shell. To see or even talk to a hantu is dangerous, itself an omen of death. Maybe I'm not alive, Sindiri said. All that's worth saving is fading away. Timon frowned, gestured around at the smudged marks on the floor. Is that what this was all about? It's useless, I realize that now, Sindiri said. Even if I had all the words, it would be no more alive than a dried fish. He rubbed the spot where the hook had jabbed him with his thumb. The ink mark was still there, just under the skin. It needs to live. Timon waited for his friend to continue, rose to his feet when he did not. Well, I shouldn't even be up here. I hope you'll forgive me. He moved to the top step of the ladder, began climbing down. No, wait, Sindiri said. You've got to help me. Help me keep her alive. But you said... No, please. I have an idea. Help me. Timon paused at the top of the ladder. Sindiri, you have to let go. I know how you feel, but you have to let go. Sindiri picked up the hook he'd been using as a quill, held it up to show Timon. Please, just stay. Help me. You have to come out for the conversation. Today. One day, that's all. Timon took a breath and nodded. All right, he said. Adapi. To awake to one's lover's face. Sinta. To love truly. Min sintai. To love for the last time. At the end of the day, as the shadows reached over the main walkway, Sundari rejoined the conversation. Many people turned to look, not only because of his absence, but because of the black marks that appeared on his face, arms, and legs. 
Those that saw the marks were letters pricked out under his skin, forming words that meant nothing even to those that could read Grand Saludian. Only he and Timon knew that the words, in fact, covered his whole body, arranged so that their location and position would represent the grammar of the language he and Cassepi had shared, the oldest root words along the spine, verbs on the muscles, every inch of skin recalling the meaning and inflection of a word. Despite the small commotion he was causing, Sindiri paid the ink marks little mind. The Saludians have no mirrors or steel, and their sea is too dark to ever show a clear reflection, so he would never see most of the words Timon had scribed on his skin. That was not important, though. All that mattered was that they would not fade away, that they were still a living language. Lifetime isn't enough, but it's all we have. We are brief, fragile, but language binds us to each other and to the past and to the future. Love speaks us, defines us, gives us a solidity and a presence that allows us to touch the infinite. Robert Anton Wilson once said that we're trapped in linguistic constructs. All that is, is metaphor. But language, like the ocean, is always changing, and metaphors, metaphors are unfathomably rich and versatile. We may, in our daily lives, be trapped in certain metaphors, accepting certain linguistic constructs as intrinsically natural rather than a product of culture and language. But we have poetry, and we have stories, the best of which, whether they are genre stories or not, give us new words for our experiences, new metaphors through which to see the universe, new languages with which we incorporate ourselves. This is why certain stories speak to us differently at different times in our lives, and why stories can, sometimes quite literally, change our lives. And speaking of stories and changed lives, Feedback this week is for Podcastle episode 343, Elf Employment, our annual holiday story from Heather Shaw and Tim Pratt. This was a scathing indictment of Santa's labor practices as seen through the eyes of a child. Well, okay, maybe that's not quite accurate. Anyway, feedback was mostly positive. Varda wrote, I got something of a Roll doll vibe from it with the humor horror line and the themes of child neglect and kids being forced to grow up too fast because the adults in their lives had failed them. I'm really glad it stayed a little more on the bright side of things, though, and I was glad it had a happy ending, even in a way for the children rescued by Santa's workshop and put to work there. While Infinite Monkey wrote, This one did indeed have a darker, unfortunate undercurrent involving parents, though I'm glad things got resolved in a good way that didn't resort to complete schmaltz. However, for some, the story's darker elements didn't sit well within the frame of the story. Did you happen to catch the three metaphors in that one sentence? Anyway, Maxilu wrote, Listening to this story made me angry. What about those children in abusive homes who don't get chosen? What about those who are parentless, who either live on the street or in foster homes with substandard caregivers who won't take the kids to see Santa? 
And those who are taken, they trade one crap life for another? I guess it would ruin the point of the story for the North Pole to be all glitter and candy canes. But there could have been a little more joy. These kids were rescued from horrible situations, and they go straight to sorting garbage and mucking out reindeer poop? No thanks. Maxilou's passion reminds us that we can dislike a story for any number of valid reasons, so thank you for that. Thanks also to all of you who have shared your thoughts on that story. If you want to join the conversation about today's story, go over to forum.escapeartists.net. Also, if you are able to make a donation, please do. Every penny goes to paying our authors and keeping the podcast going. For those of you who might not have seen the announcement, we will be paying even more here at PodCastle. Rates are increasing to six cents per word for original fiction and two cents per word for reprints. We can only do that because of your support in any and all ways you can offer it. From everyone here at PodCastle, LaShawn Wanak, Graham Dunlop, Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, editors, soon to be officially former, Anna Schwind and Dave Thompson, and editors newly incarnated, Don Phoenix and Kitty McLean, we thank you for spending time with us here in the castle, and we will be back again next week with another story, just for you. And you. Well, okay, for you too. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote comes from philosopher and literary theorist Roland Barthes, who wrote, Language is a skin. I rub my language against the other. It is as if I had words instead of fingers, or fingers at the tip of my words. My language trembles with desire.